Welcome to the Minnesotan Pod. Today we have a very, very, very special guest, Brett Hedekin from North St. Paul, Minnesota. Hasn't been there in a long time. He's lived in California for most of his post-professional uh, career. He grew up in North St. Paul, played college hockey at St. Cloud State. He still holds the all-time record for defenseman with 49 points. He played 17 pro years pro and played with several great pros. We'll get to that much more and We'll learn about the new Hetty Pack as well. Hope you enjoy today's show. You need to stay up out in the streets if you can't take the heat. You need to stay up out in the streets if you can't take the heat. Cause it get cold like Minnesota. Cold like Minnesota. Cold like Minnesota. Cold like Minnesota. You need to stay up out in the streets if you can't take the heat. Hey, Brett. How you doing? Doing great, Tony. Great to see you in your nice little studio here. It's kind of nice to be back in Minnesota as well, which is uh, always good to be home, and it's great to be able to talk with you. How long uh, have you been in Minnesota? For a handful of days, right? Uh, got in here at 8 a.m. in the morning on Saturday, and Hockey Day Minnesota was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so I was able to really partake in Saturday's events and then Sunday's events. So and, and you heard you were hand assembling bags. You hand assembled 399 out of 400 of those bags. I'm really happy that you know. I wish I could have helped out. My mom, my dad, my sister, Stop Kelly. It. They really helped out before I got here. I couldn't do it. I mean, it all had to come in here to Minnesota. We had to get some sponsors uh, embroidered onto the bags. Yep. Tons of great sponsors that uh, were nice enough to donate their money to be able to give these kids an opportunity. Uh, at having uh, something to memorialize or memorize or whatever what you want to say, <laughs> yeah, uh, to be able to have a something to to take home afterwards, a, a patch on a on a backpack that they can remember um, the the great event of here Hockey Day Minnesota. So it was a lot of fun. And this was your was this your first one? This was my first time I've been a part of it. Yeah, and my first time I've seen. And a, you and you got to see how the the sleeves rolled up. If you're yeah. down and if you're in the vendor section and you're handing out bags to players, you're seeing the the bowels of how hard it is to pull off something like they pulled off this weekend. Yeah, if you saw if you went and watched the games and you saw that traveling camera that Bally's had on there from both sides and you could see the puck going down and they're tra you know trailing the play and you can see all that. And then all of the stands and the the ice was in great great condition there, yeah. and all the little uh, places where the athletes got dressed, and then uh, the tents and all the things that people were able to do. The the VIP tent, I know from the guys I had worked with, Nick Guzzo and and Mike Schwartz, and all of the Hockey Day Minnesota um, staff that put this together for over a year. I mean, you're the, name dropping now, right? I, well, the volunteer, yeah, they, they'll, they'll be happy with it. Guzzo and Schwartz, you're great guys. Yeah, it's good. it was good to kind of get to know them at a higher level and then to see the, the work that goes into these things. It's all volunteer. Yeah, it's it's so impressive. Um, let's get into it. Uh, there's so much ground cover. I always tell people, the older you are, the more interesting the story. And uh, you're a couple of years younger than me, but I think your story is going to be fascinating for kids to hear, uh, you know, people, WCHA fans to hear, uh, NHL fans to hear, just hockey people in general. I think they're going to be excited to hear about it. And I know they're going to be excited to hear about these bags too because I'm like a little kid. I think they think they're the coolest things ever. These are going to be the hockey jackets that you and I wore, exactly. Minneapolis West hockey and North St. Paul hockey jackets. But we're going to basically put those, make those into backpacks. They ha yeah. 
I mean, you remember those jackets? We oh. had the patches that went on the jackets. I mean, anybody hat that's trick, our ages, right? right? Yeah, the hat tricks, the silver stick tournaments, to all the different uh, places we played. I mean, that's what we had back in the day. And I still have all of my patches that were pulled off my jacket. And really? My, and my mom took them and put them on a quilt that I still lives up in my lake house in northern Minnesota. Gull Lake, right? Gull Lake. I, I, I go home and I see that, my blanket, that's sitting over one of my uh, my couches. And I it just... It sparks so many great memories of my youth and growing up in Minnesota. And, yeah, it's going to be the new letter jacket or whatever you want to say here for kids in Minnesota for hockey. I love it. We'll get to that more yeah. later. It's so funny. You talk about those patches. It's almost soothing, right? Like, when you yeah. see that quilt, it's like it's soothing. Like, oh, I remember that tournament. We took yeah. third. Like, third was is so lame now to these days. But, like, we finished third in a tournament. Like, that was cool. We were third out of, like, 16 teams. Yeah. You know, it's just so totally. many memories come back. You know, like the popcorn, the... You know, all the different smells in a rink would just, those patches give off all of those feelings. All of those feelings. You know, the hotels that you'd stay in, the <laughs> yes. parents would stay in, and they'd have, be having fun and being a part of the whole weekend festivities. Times that you've, you're down in a game and you came back to, to tie it in a third and win. You know, I mean, those are memories I can still remember of a, of a game that we had that uh, uh, a screw fell off of one of the kids' helmet and the Zamboni picked it up. And we were down by three goals going into the third. And because the screw then messed up the ice, they had to take more time to fix no it. No way. So that gave us a little more time <laughs> to regroup. And the other team kind of got cold. Stale. Got stale. <laughs> and we came out guns blazing. We ended up one goal, two goal, three goal. We tied up and ended up winning the hockey game, win the championship. And those are the things that, you know, you can still, like you say, those patches bring back the thoughts of that. I have a lot of memories of just teams that we beat. You know, we, we met via Tom Chorsky. So we could we had a chance basically in youth hockey against anybody. Like Lilla, when you have a guy who's bigger, stronger, yeah, faster, sure. more skilled, right? Yeah. So we it was fun to play youth hockey with him because like, oh, we just beat a diner. We just beat this team. And it's like, it was great. Um, do you have any memories as a kid growing up? Like we, my North St. Paul team beat these guys or this group, it was hard to beat. We always beat those guys because mine was snuggy and I've, told Dave this, you know, 70 to 80 times how we beat them in the district semifinals. He was Hopkins Lindbergh. Do you got one of those stories where you well, got a guy who you beat? Or maybe it was even in high school with the team that you beat. You know, I, I think the one thing that comes to mind, you'd, you'd hate to say a, a losing game comes to mind, but it was uh, we had such a good season my senior year that we had to play Park Center uh, on the crossover, and we outshot them 51 to 20. Um, and the the thing was is I never had the chance to play against Hill Murray uh, as you know in in high school, and that was one thing I really wanted to do. I wanted a shot at beating <laughs> at Hill, Hill Murray, right? Yeah, because I I was a guy that grew up uh, not even a mile away from Hill Murray. I mean, I I probably could have went to Hill Murray. I've got some of my best friends this to this day, even guys I'm you know I, I've become so good of friends with. They, I could they're, they're really legitimate. But they all went to Hill Murray. Yeah, and I would have probably had a, a great time getting to know them even at a younger age. But now they've become great friends. But uh, I wanted a shot at them, and we and this was the game to play them. This was the game. If we win, we get Hill Murray, and we we put up fifty one shots. For whatever reason, the goaltender he ate his Wheaties in the morning, and and everything came together for him. Stopped every shot that we threw at him, and we ended up losing one nothing. I think was the name the oh, score of the terrible. game. And we, our season was over, and then we didn't get a chance and a shot at Hill. But um, a lot of great memories, Bill Hallbreder, and 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 just our coach to our players. I I could have went to Hill, I didn't. 
and I stayed at North St. Paul. Why didn't you go to Hill? Or did, did you consider it? Did you go for? Did you did you ever walk the school and meet Scry and all that stuff? You or? know what? Never walked the school. Got some calls from players that I knew. Uh, Brent Sir got a guy that I grew up with. We went, we, you know, knew each other from the second grade, and and I just always felt like all of the camps I did and growing up in North St. Paul, don't, going through all of those moments, I I would have had a really hard time leaving those people that helped me get to this point. Um, and going to Hill Murray, I felt too loyal to them. And, uh, you know, the people that helped me get to this point or to that point in high school. So I just, I just couldn't do it. Okay. So by reading your bio, it says you're pretty athletic. I I have a hard time believing that, but it says (laughs) you're pretty athletic. Uh, and, but what really jumped out at me was a seven inch growth spurt between 11th and 12th grade. What's going on in your body? Were, were you like 5'2", five 5'3", five and went to 5'10"? Or was this, you know, what what did you go f- to and from in that span? And, and was your body just aching or what? I don't remember my body aching. I knew I was growing because people, um, on my 16th birthday, I put 5'6", 135 pounds on my license. That's what it said. What, say and, it again? 5'6". Five? Five, Wow. 135 and I think I was obviously fabricating my weight I, yeah. I think it was probably 130 which I you know five pounds I was really stretching it uh, <laughs> and uh, by the time I was you know 17 I was six foot two so um, I remember teachers coming up to me in school saying what did you grow like two inches yesterday right I, I had multiple teachers telling me that in school um, that year but um that was an interesting, I, I had these big hands and big feet and my mom and my dad's six, you know, one, uh, well, that was big back then. Yeah. And he was, he's six, one and a good athlete. And, you know, and I was just this little kid basically knowing that maybe there was going to be a moment that I was going to hit this growth spurt. And then I finally did as a junior. Um, so you played football, uh, but weren't big enough to play like your sophomore and junior year walk through going back to football. Did, was contact one of your things? Um, you know, growing up, we had incredible, uh, youth teams that I played on. We won championships all the time. Uh, and I was a quarterback and the coaches I had were really good at teaching just the fundamentals of football. And, uh, we always seemed to have just teams, no matter who we had that, you know, get selected to a particular team. We just seemed to pull it together because of the coaches, because of the athletes that we, the limited amount of them, but we had enough to get there. And I always just loved football for whatever reason. It was one of those things I always really enjoyed. Um, but those two years were my sophomore and junior year where I felt like I just, I'm going to get hurt here. I played soccer, but I really, after growing that, you know, those six, seven inches, I, I said I really wanted to go back and finish up my senior year. Did you play quarterback too? I didn't play quarterback. I went to slot, slot back. We had a really great quarterback, Brent Killen, who was a heck of an athlete, went on to play baseball in college and even some minor league pro um, right. uh, baseball. But anyway, so he was a great athlete, played great quarterback. I, I did slot back. I think I had one touchdown during the season. Really? <laughs> Homecoming night. I ended up slot getting back. So you were like probably the guy that was like the, the decoy a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Running out the routes and, they, and I, you know, ran some balls too. And, and, but caught, caught, caught a lot of balls that year, had a lot of fun. Um, just one of those things. I'm really happy that I went back and played football my senior year. So one of the things we talked about before we started, you, you said at 10 years old, I knew I wanted to play college hockey or beyond high school. How does a kid, what was it? Were you that good? Was it that just a drive? What, 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 what do you think was in your head when you were 10, 11 years old thinking that? I remember sitting down 
on the carpet, leaned up against the couch with my dad as the 1980 Olympic team. Here we go. Won, I love it. Won the, the gold medal uh, in, in Lake Placid. And I remember saying, that's what I want to do. I want to become an Olympian. And I think that kind of inertia that just was plugged into my head, you know, you don't know how you're going to do it. And at a 10-year-old kid, you don't know what that journey looks like. But that's the initial spark that happened for me that said, I want to become an Olympian someday. And then you start to think as you get a couple years older, well, how am I going to do that? Well, I think the best way for me to do that is become a college player. Go to college. Because right. I had two of my cousins, Dan and Pat Goff, they ended up, I, they were my really a couple of my idols growing up. Right. One was a tall defenseman, Pat, and then his brother Dan was a, a couple years younger. Where did they he, play? They played at Roseville. Okay. And they both got scholarships to Michigan. And I just remember, wow, they're, they're Wolverines. You know, they went to college. And that was something that I really put out there is that I know I had to work hard to become a college athlete first if I ever wanted a shot at an Olympic team. Right. And so I, I, I was smart enough to know that, that I knew I, I had to take some steps to get there, uh, not knowing if I'd ever make it. And I think that's something that I think a lot of kids need to, to, to know is that it's good to put big dreams out there. Right. And then it's good to kind of take a strategy on how you might get there and then just start to chip away. Things like this, they don't happen overnight. No. And they got to just take some time and you have to be focused. I do remember when guys were going out, you know, maybe partying in high school, whatever they were doing, I was going to the gym. Yeah. And, and I was committed to trying to, you know, be honest with you, get out of North St. Paul. Yeah, I, I wanted yeah. to get out of my hometown, right? I wanted to, I wanted to do something bigger. I want to go to college. I want to experience that, and that's how it started for me that this journey. Okay, I'm glad you brought up the Olympics because I, I tell this story all the time. It kind of come. It's kind of a twofold statement, but uh, I watch women's hockey now, and I love the, how they've developed and how they're getting there, and now there's professionals, and and I always tell people why are you. They always ask why are you so excited. I'm like, well, when I was 12. I watched my childhood idols, you know, Eric Strobel and Neil Broughton and Rob McClanahan, all these kids who grew up in my town, go win the world. They would win. They won the world championship. They won the gold medal in the Olympics. And then they went and played pro hockey like it was easy. Like, here's Dave Kristoff and, and Broughton playing in the pros. And I was like, if... And I like I liken that to what's going to happen with women hockey. They're all going to be playing in the Olympics and they'll be playing pros and... It was such an inspiration for me to watch American-born players not just win gold, but just go on and play pro hockey. And they set the, they literally set the table for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So all those, you know, all those kids that were in the late seventies, early eighties, they were looking up to them and going, "Now I see Broughton do it. If Broughton can do it, I can do it. I can do it." I, I tell you, every guy on that '92 Olympic team that I ended up playing on. Every one of them could probably tell you this exact story of that moment where they were when they saw the Olympic team win gold in 1980. A lot of us were 10 years old, where 11 were years you? old, or 9 years where old. Where were you on that Friday? Where were you on Sunday? I love asking I, I, you that. Just in our house in North St. Paul where really? I grew up. Yep, and I can still, it was a split entry where you go upstairs. I can still see the, the living room that we sat on. We could still see the TV. I know the couch, and, you know, you just, I can just visualize it. It's there. Yeah. yeah, I on Friday because it was in the afternoon. We had a district playoff game, and Chore and I were every other year. So this was the year he was a Bantam and I was a second year Pee Wee, and so he was, had nothing to do at four o'clock on a Friday. So he came to my game, and he we drive over to Augsburg, and we're listening on the radio, you know, on WCCO, and and 
between period break, either between the first and second or second, third, we come off the ice and he ruined it. He's like, we won. We beat the Russians. And I don't really remember what happened in my hockey game after that. I was just thrilled, you know. And then we watched together on Sunday morning at my house and just went absolutely bonkers. Yeah, yeah, just it changed American hockey. I mean, that moment really, Herb Brooks and his group and what they did, what they accomplished, doing something that, you know, a miracle. Do you believe in miracles? We all do now, right? We all believe in this. all. Yeah, absolutely. It really did. All right, so... You, we talked a little bit about St. Cloud State. You were there in the early years. Was Herb the coach when you first got there? Because I know he had left fairly soon after when he started the program. He was gone by the time I got there, okay. and and Craig Dahl was the guy that kind of worked underneath Herb yep. and took over the program when he left. So never had Herb, unfortunately. Okay. Um, talk about your days there. What, what kind of stands out? Uh, I know it's probably the growth into a professional player. What did you learn there that kind of – transferred from a high school kid to a professional athlete? Um, This is a fun one because I remember my freshman year. So they recruited uh, 10 new freshmen. We were all going from a Division III school to finally making the transition. Exactly what Herb Brooks set out to do was provide more Division I scholarships for Minnesota kids. We only had the University of Minnesota and Duluth, and he's like, we have to change that. Uh, you know, when you got Michigan, you've got so many universities, uh, Division One programs. There Michigan at the time. Totally. And so setting on that course, uh, my freshman year, we you know, were finally in Division One, and we were going to move to the WCHA my sophomore year. But that freshman year, they brought in uh, 10 new freshmen. Eight, eight of them all had – actually, nine of them had full rides. Yeah, Hannes was one of them. Hannes was one. Actually, I'm going to give it back. Sats eight, was eight another them, one. Sats was Jeff Satterdahl yep. and Hannes, and then three Canadian defensemen um, that they brought in. And I was a defenseman, but because those Canadian defensemen got recruited, they took me and they gave me and one other guy. A, uh, we split a full ride. So he, he got a half ride. I got a Are half ride. you forward? And they moved me up to forward my <laughs> freshman right, year. That's right. I read that. Yeah. So I, I didn't even play the position that I was really, that I loved. And I, I've got the defenseman gene. I do not have the forward gene up yeah. here. You know? And, and so. Hmm, I look at your points. I see forward gene. Well, I mean, that was one, you know. One couple, year. A couple years there where it finally came together for me, my sophomore. But getting back to my freshman year, um, I was in and out of the lineup my freshman year. Matter of fact. The nights that I was out of the lineup, I was up in the corner of the building before the new arena there was at St. Cloud. They, we had the old, you know, the Union uh, Arena back over 30 minutes out of St. Cloud over there by St. John's. And we, I would be pushing the play button on the cassette player during the stoppages of play the nights I didn't play for the games. So as the, the play stopped and during the course so of the, the game, video coach too, I was, well, <laughs> I was the audio guy. When you heard music playing in the, uh, inter, you know, in between shifts, that was me. When the music came on, when there was a stoppage of play, that was me. You were playing the, play. the music. I was playing the music. Oh, I thought you yeah. were like turning the camera off and on for the no. video guy. Yeah. That was one of my jobs. There was as a freshman when I was out of the lineup. So, uh, at the end of that season, you know, in and out of the lineup, I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot about what I really need to do for me if I do want to come back as a sophomore. I went into Coach Dahl's office after the season, and I said, look, I appreciate the opportunity as a freshman, and you gave me. I know didn't play a lot this year, but I know I can come back and help this team as a defenseman. So I think that's the beginning phase of me believing in myself, knowing that I could help a lot more than I was helping right now. And there's going to be a lot of moments in your career where you have to stand up for yourself 
and be able to have enough confidence in what you can provide. Yeah. Because that sophomore year, when I came back at, after the summer, because Coach Dahl said, okay, I want you to come back as a defenseman then. Uh, go back and skate in your summer leagues, and we'll see you next year. And, I, you know, he t- I, you know after uh, many years later, he came to me and said he thought he was going to cut me that next year, um, and he didn't. Kept me on the team, and I made the team as a defenseman. I started the season on fire as a, as a sophomore. I started getting points. Um, I ended up getting injured towards the end of the year on my back. I think I, that seven inches I grew, my body lifting yeah. weights all those time. I really set back there that last part of the, my sophomore year, and I took a lot of recovery. But I finally recovered, and that's when my junior year happened. Yeah, and it did it ever. I mean, forty nine points. You you contend you might have had a couple more that didn't get that you know put in there, and it's a Canadian team, correct? Right? Yeah, it was uh, Guelph. <laughs> it was Guelph. It was Guelph. It was the the Canadian the hardest word in the English language. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Guelph University. Yeah, they. Yeah, there was some points I had that weekend that never got added. I had a couple goals over a, a Friday Saturday series Which with them that really sounds like you're nitpicking. But I am. Hey, but twenty <laughs> goals. Is, yeah, you had eighteen. Twenty is. Monumental for a defender. I mean, I, I I don't even know what happened that year. I'll be honest with you. Just pucks were going in the net. We played on an Olympic size sheet. I was a skater, so that gave me more room to move out there. And I don't even I can't even recall a lot of those goals that went in because it was just one of those really memorable seasons that everything sort of happened for me. But I don't remember exactly those ones that were going in the net. But a lot did. All right, so I got there's a lot of room here, so I, I got to get cruising here. So I got to get yeah. to this Olympic moment. I mean, you you, you take your senior year off at St. Cloud uh, and join the national team, and now you're pretty much trying out for the Olympic team, but you don't have a spot until literally like week or two before the Olympic Games in Elberville. Is that how it works? Yeah, you're basically, you know, over in, in Europe somewhere waiting to go to France to – for the Olympic Games. and How many guys are there? 26? Oh, man, I couldn't tell you. No, more than that. Probably, really? Probably 40. 35, maybe, what? guys. Yeah, there was a lot of guys that were still there. So um, they sent 15 or 13 dudes back home? Yeah. Yeah, I think. I, and I, it, I could be wrong. I, I, you know, it's been one of those, it's been a long time since remembering that moment of, you know, which guys were going home and which guys were actually going to France. But um, and these were all like it just sort of get everyone's memory. This wasn't pros, and it really wasn't college kids. These were mostly like minor league American hockey players and some really good college players. We were most of us were college players. They had filtered in uh, some AHL players, some minor league pro players. Well, like the goalie, right? Ray LeBlanc. Ray was LeBlanc. A goalie. He was, but he was with us for a lot of that year. But he came here at the end, I believe, and then. Uh, but there was a lot of players that uh, were filtered in at times that were coming from pro, pros. But a lot of us were guys that left school to, you know, to try a dream, to try to go for this Olympic team. And this is where the national team would travel around that, that year. You'd leave school and you play against exhibition NHL teams. You play the Canadian national team. I don't know. We played them 15, 20 times that really? year. We played over in Europe a, a bunch of times, uh, never knowing if you'd actually make the team. Right, you're 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 there, trying to make it traumatizing. It was it was hard. I mean it. It's and, and I was, I mean, Coach Peterson, obviously the Southwest coach, he's a Minnesotan. He doesn't take a lot of Minnesota kids on that team. That's so interesting thing, right? I mean, and, and it team, was part of the '80 formula. They had 14 on the team, right? You know, so it's, it's it, they never really ever got back to that 
formula with the Minnesota kids. But was it strange that you did you're, you got this Minnesota coach and not a lot of Minnesota kids? It was a little strange because there were so many guys from out east, Boston College, Boston University, Harvard. I mean, all those universities out there on the East Coast, we were filtered with a lot of them. And then there was just a few of us Minnesota kids that were there kind of just – um, and it, it was a different personality traits, right? Min- you know, Minnesota people. Yes. And then there's the Eastern coast that just seemed to, you know, I was getting a, you know. Was or, Kachuk on the team? Kachuk, you know, Bill he Guerin. He had been one of the best players on that team, right? Keith Kachuk and uh, and Bill Guerin. And Bill Guerin ended up getting cut. That was, to this day, one of the things that still bothers me. Really? Yeah. I, I feel, you know, he left that team after getting cut, and he goes on, and eventually a, a year or two later wins that championship with, with the Devils. Yep. I mean, that tells you how good, and he was an impact player yes. in that Stanley Cup final run and, and, and those playoffs, and that's a guy that we could have had on yeah. our squad. I just, that was a really difficult one for me to handle because there was a, a few cuts there at the end that they were with us the whole time, guys that committed to leaving school, yeah, going for their dream, and I know, I, if you ask Bill Guerin this story, he'd, he'd Still remember it. He probably still feels the yeah, probably the burn, the burn inside, and it burned me. And I didn't even wasn't even the guy that got cut. He's probably here in Minnesota to win a Stanley Cup to put it in Dave Peterson's memories face, right? Well, like, I did it. I finally did it. I would Dave love Peterson. Love, right? to, love to see him do that here. I think Minnesota <laughs> needs it, right? After the Vikings and oh. all the other things, but oh, uh, no, I, I think the Wild. It'd be fun to see a Stanley Cup in St. Paul. Um, we can get to that yeah. down the road. We've got I, to your current yeah. career. I mean, that that's another, you know, 10 pages right there. <laughs> we got to just stick to your hockey career at this point. Um, you guys had a hell of a run in Albertville, uh, real close. I mean, LeBlanc was close to being a folk hero. I mean, I looked at his stats today, 94 save percentage, 941 save yeah. percentage pre-butterfly. That's almost impossible if you think about it. Yeah, I remember people in America, you know, hearing this goaltender playing great. I remember seeing pictures of his mask in the USA Today when you got like a whatever that, you know, you're seeing all the different articles about him. And, you know, you're just locked into the moment. You're really not paying attention. But you knew our goaltender was playing great. I think we were undefeated going into the medal round. You know, we we beat the Swedes. We tied the Finns. And, and we just had a terrific pre-part of the, of the tournament we got Russia and the crossover yeah and two to two with 10 minutes to go in the game I think they called a couple of penalties against us they yep. scored a power play goal and really the game was over we had to come back I think it was a night game and we had to come back earlier afternoon the following day or whatever it was an earlier game to play the bronze medal game and I think the tough Czech, yeah it was tough we weren't as rested they were and we got pounded five to one and and just like that you're not taking home a medal and it's one of those things that still bothers me because I think you know, I've always wanted to become uh, an Olympic medalist, but I'm very, very proud of, you know, that journey as a 10-year-old, not knowing how I'd get there to become an Olympian. Walking into opening ceremonies was something that was really special. I'm going to get to that, uh, the, the Olympic part of it, because uh, one of the things I, I, I did a pod with Dave Snugger, and he talked about his experience in 88, and one of the things that he talked about there was seeing meeting and seeing the other athletes prepare, right? So he's talking to, you know, uh, figure skaters and, and speed skaters and bobsledders and all these people who this is their sole job. And he goes, I'm just a hockey player. I played at Hopkins High School and played for the Gophers. I never really considered myself a world-class athlete. Meanwhile, he's having lunch with these world-class athletes. Well, And that was his kind of 
Olympic memory, like it really taught him a lot. What was the thing that maybe you learned or biggest memory other than one of the figure skaters coming over and taking a selfie with you? But other than that, <laughs> what were some of the things that kind of jumped out at you from that first Olympics? Yeah, I, I think seeing all the winter Olympians in our camp and, and them eating and, and you're around them and you can see the just kind of the aura of some of these skiers yes. and some of the, the other hockey players that you knew that were great hockey players and you can see them eating. Uh, you know, taking care of themselves, preparing. And I remember even Colorado Springs going there and, and being part of that whole thing and seeing the different athletes that were Americans that were so focused on just making it uh, in the Olympic Games. So I, I think those things all, you know, you start to kind of piece those things together and, and what you need to do to try to learn every day. Take yeah. every day as a day and opportunity to learn. I, I was blown away because I started, as Snuggie was telling me this, I started to imagine, like, skiers and, you know, how fit they were. And it, he just talked about how fit and how professional they were compared to, yeah, he goes, us other 19 schlubs playing college hockey. We were we were bums compared to the rest of the crew there. We were by far the guys in the worst condition. But everybody knew who we were, you know, because we were on the hockey team. Yeah, you the know? hockey players. But, you know, and, and we have a different sport. You can train all you want, but you got to get on that ice and you got to get up and down the ice. And any hockey player listening is going to tell you that there's nothing you can do but skate to really get yourself into, into great condition that, to, to handle the ice. So after this, we could go through all of your teams. I mean, there's some amazing runs. You were on the Canucks. Yeah, with is it 90, 94, 94. 94 or ninety four against against the Rangers, right? Yeah. So one of arguably one of the greatest series. You said greatest series of all time. It's it's it's. I would say it's in the top three. It's up there. I mean, people have talked about that Stanley Cup Finals. You know, when the Rangers they hadn't won since nineteen forty. You know, people are chanting that when they were playing the Devils and, you know, is it going to haunt them? Is it going to come back? And all these, you know, these hexes that are on the Rangers. But uh, I was in New York during that era. I was telling you about that yeah. off air. And there would be jerseys uh, at Madison Square Garden, and it would say 40 on the back. Instead of saying Johnson on the on the collar, it would say, when next? Yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs> there was lots of those lots when of next that. jerseys. But so what, to be a part of that would be... I know you lost the Stanley Cup final in heartbreaking fashion, but to watch it all unfold must have been kind of cool. Yeah, there's so many great moments of that Stanley Cup run. I think, you know, Pat Quinn, this big Irish coach that we had, was uh, really special for me. I, I just remember this big arm coming around me when I first joined the Canucks, and he just said to me, he goes, you know, um, how you doing, kid? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, I got to get my confidence back, you know? Right. And, and he was a guy that kind of said, well, don't worry. We're going to, I'm going to teach you defense. I'm going to get you playing some great hockey and just, you know, break you down to the, you know, the basics here of what you can do to be a good hockey player in the NHL. And that was kind of the very first coach in the NHL that really kind of, I felt like, holy cow, this guy's, he's got my back. He cares for me. He cares for me, you know, and can see some of the value that I could bring to a hockey team. And, that was the beginning of really, I thought, my NHL career. Even though I started with the Blues, drafted by the Blues, played a few years there. Um, you know, when I finally got traded to, to Vancouver, it was walking in that locker room for the first time, feeling different. There's something different about that room and about the people that room. And that first run of that first round of against the Calgary Flames, they we were, the I think, the eighth seed. They were the number one seed. And we went into Calgary, and, and I say I think this his team was 500 that year. We were just above 500, yeah. and but the trade that me, Jeff Brown, Nathan Lafayette, all got traded at the end of the season towards there, um, 
they had signed Peter Nedved. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but Nedved went to St. Louis as a restricted free agent, and they said, hey, in for compensation, Vancouver wants Brennan Shanahan. Well, the arbitrator said, no, that's not a fair trade, Nedved, for Shanahan. We're going to take Janney. Craig Janney then says, hey, I'm going to go home. Well, then at the trade deadline, Janney gets traded back to, to St. Louis, and me, Jeff Brown, and Nathan Lafayette all go to Vancouver. So they, they didn't have three guys before the season. All of a sudden, you interject two defensemen that me and Jeff Brown played together, right. and Nathan Lafayette was on the fourth line and a really great grinder type of player. And uh, all of a sudden, they had three more guys in their lineup. But that first round in the playoff series against Calgary, I, I always say I, I went in a boy and I came out a man. It was <laughs> one of the toughest seven games I'd ever been a part of. We win in, in dramatic fashion. I think Pavel Burry scores a double or a triple overtime goal to, to end the series to win. And then it kind of just catapulted us uh, past Dallas, and then we get by Toronto to go to the Stanley Cup Finals against New York. Um, I, there's so many players. I was uh, I was up in Duluth today and drove back. It was two and a half hour drive. I went through every one of your teams that you played on and looked through all the different rosters. And there's kids from your there are players from your childhood, the Dino Cicerellis and Basil McCrays, and there's all these great players. But I made a list of your ten greatest players that you play with now you can dispute me on these there's it's, yeah. there's in, in an order and there's there's only one that i i won't take dispute from and that's number one you said his name just a minute ago pavel bure he's one of the four or five best players i've ever seen play um you got to play beside him uh tell me a little bit about him i'm just i'm dying to hear this. well i'm really surprised that you place them that high because a lot of people i mean to this really era, yeah it's funny because i i'll mention Pavel Bure. i'm telling you what this guy was unbelievable the way he could play i i mean he's not Connor mcdavid and i as i watch Connor mcdavid i think that i watch he's Bure. close he's dang close i mean he's shorter version yeah shorter version yeah. mcdavid probably has you know a few more things that Bure maybe didn't have but i remember pavel Bure in practice this is how competitive this guy was first of all 175 80 pounds tops, yep. but just really lean. And uh, the Russian rocket, and he he looked like a rocket without his gear on. You're like, this guy is in incredible condition. Well, he, he would keep track of how many goals he would score in practice against each goalie. And he would come inside the locker room, and on the whiteboard, he would put Kirk McLean, seven goals. <laughs> Kay Whitmore, nine goals. And what he was doing is he was making them mad, first of all. They would, they would not be happy with this. But he was, what he was trying to do is he was trying to get the most out of each one of those goaltenders every day. So when he scored a goal, it was a goal, right? It wasn't nothing like well, these goalies weren't you know, thrown in the towel or anything like that. He wanted their goaltenders best. So he, he challenged them every day by, by keeping track. That I was love that. really, really fun. And, you know, I just think that um, – for a guy that could handle a puck as as quickly as he could and the way he could accelerate yeah. after he beat a player on a one-on-one through the little triangle there, he would just hit an afterburner like I'd never seen and just blow around people. When it, you practiced against him, did he make you better? I would have imagined you would learn how to play against the fastest players on the other 20-plus teams, right? Tony, Tony, the first practice I ever had against Beret, he came down to me one-on-one. He came down, and it was beats me once to the inside. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm beat. He slowed down, waited for me to catch up, 
beats me back to the other side and then just goes down and <laughs> gets a great shot, scored on the goaltender. I'm just like, oh, no, man, this is going to get – I'm going to find myself in the rafters. But, yes, day, day in and day out, you start to uh, figure out a way to, to, to kind of match that speed. But really right. powerful player. I'm going to go next. This one's easy, too. This is, this is Mark Messier. That's no dispute there. Uh, and then here's a real good – you know, I, I always call him under the radar a little bit. Uh, I mean, from – an American hockey player's perspective, or my American hockey fan's perspective, Trevor Linden. Yeah. Yeah, Trevor, um, he was the first guy that I, I really saw as this day in, day out, no matter what the circumstance is, he's playing. Yeah. Like, he, he was in the lineup, no matter what, took a shot off the foot. Um, it just seemed like this guy was unhurtable. Like yeah, he just every night I felt like kind of the Cal Ripken. Yeah, right. Yeah, just the Cal Ripken style, knowing that every night he was going to be able to contribute and at a high level. Uh, it was a real positive teammate. Really? Okay. Yeah, really a good leader. I, I really liked him as a leader. I think he was uh, a guy that I one of the first guys that I really noticed that was just held himself in a real high standard, and and and, and tried to bring everybody else to that high standard. What stood out to me is it felt like the fan base just. They were his. He was part of the family. Yeah. Everybody. There's no one disliked him. Nobody. Right. I mean, well, the captain of the Stanley Cup final team. Yeah. That, you know, lost the Rangers, but uh, he was the guy that everybody's like, yeah, he's our man. He's yeah. the guy leading the way. Yeah. He and is. yeah, and he is to this day is a, a real popular figure in Vancouver. All right. Here's another talent guy. Before we go, oh, there's a lot of talent here. My goodness. Uh, another Russian, Alexander Mogil. Oh man. He had a hundred and like seventeen points the year he played with you. Yeah, unreal. Just you know his story and with he's the first one, right? He, he was the first one, and he he tells the story that it was it was supposed to be Fedorov that was supposed to right. affect. and I think it got down to that moment, and he Fedorov kind of bailed on it, and he says, "I'll take it. I'll take the you know the, the ticket. I'm I'm going." And then he walked out the back door and off he went in a car and he, you know, defected and joined the Buffalo Sabres. But and those decisions are, they're, I mean, the money and all that stuff, but he's leaving his family behind and could potentially a dangerous situation, right? Tons of courage. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, I mean, that's a movie, I think. I mean, it's a story. I, mean, <laughs> I know. The player that he was and uh, his ability to shoot the puck, though, was elite. I, I've never seen like it. He just, the flick of the wrist, he could pick corners. Um, it was really strong on his skates in the corner. You could never bounce him off the puck. He had an ability to, to protect it better than anybody had ever seen, right? The Russians just had a way of maneuvering their body uh, to protect the puck. And then when you get those guys in the open, they just were snipers. Right. And McGillney was that guy. I've met a lot of guys just like Europeans, and I always like kind of picking their brain about, you know, like you had your traditional uh, American play in a, a local community system, college, high school hockey, you know. Did you ever pick these guys' brains, like from Europe or maybe Russia? Like what was your experience like as a kid growing up and was it how much is it alike or is it a lot or is it completely different did you ever learn that from these guys you know, you know not really but i did start to see i remember when pavel because i always wanted to know on how they trained right yeah and and a lot of times they would probably do the training that the team wanted them to do but that was kind of like their extra credit like it was like kind of a probably a waste of time for a lot of these guys that they they trained a completely different way yeah and i remember when Pavs and I got Beret, we got traded together to, to Florida. We lived in the same apartment complex. And one day I came down, it was the night before a game, and it was like a 6 o'clock p.m. And I figured I'd just get a quick bike ride in. And 
while Burray was down there. And I hardly ever seen him do any extracurricular training at the arena, but this guy's a specimen, right? This guy right. doing How did something. He get there? How does he do it? Yeah. You know, is it it's just I, I could never figure it out, but there it was. I kept seeing him down in the gym on these particular times during the day that he would go through these Russian training styles that I, I was blown away, like, you know, quick motions. He would do a bike ride that was a, you know, his heart rate would just be maxed out, and then he was slow, and then maxed it out again. And so I started to see that there was a lot more to Pavel Burry's training regimen than I ever saw right. that were, was at just the Just by rink. luck, Just right? by luck, just by kind of being down in these, these moments in time. But uh, um, really fun to see different ways that guys got to where they were. And, and Pavel, without question, one of those guys for me that uh, – was really fun to play with. All right, I'm going to buzz through some more of these. Rod Brynmore, oh. uh, we'll get to Stanley Cup in a minute, so we'll save him. Uh, Brett Hall was early in your career, one of the speaking of greatest snipers right there. Craig Janney, you mentioned already. Um, uh, Scott Niedemeyer, one of my all-time favorite defensemen. Um, uh, Chris Pronger, another great defenseman. And then finally, Brendan Shanahan. So you've mentioned a few of these guys already. That's 10. I think there's, I think I'm missing one or two. Who did, who did I leave off this immaculate list of 10 players? Oh man. Um, well, Justin Williams, Mr. Game seven. Yeah. I think he's a guy. Martin Jelena is another guy that for me, um, I had him twice, once in the 94 run with Vancouver, Martin Jelena, a guy you wouldn't even, you know, maybe think about as a great player. But, you know, I think he won a Stanley Cup in Edmonton. Then he comes to Vancouver, takes, helps us, one of the main guys, Staples, that gets us to the Stanley Cup finals. And, and then I get traded to Carolina in 2002, and guess who's in that locker room? Marty Jelena. And it's, sure not enough, a, it's not an accident. And it's not it? an accident. After a while, you start to realize some of these players that have found success – um, consistently, uh, there are, it's a reason why they have been on those teams that have had success because of the people they are. And, and Martin Jelena and Justin Williams, kind of a lot of similar characteristics and the style of per people they are. Yeah. Under the radar guys never complained. And I think Roddy Brindamore can go in this, this uh, you know, I guess group of guys as well that they never pointed the finger at another teammate. I'd never seen Martin Jelena. Justin Williams or Rod Brindamore put another player down ever, ever. Yeah. They only picked guys up. They only were more of the guys that would tap you on the shin pad saying, I got you. We need more of that, don't we? Oh, we do. Oh, we do. It's a, it's a good lead into my next question. It's about culture. It's a big term these days. Everyone talks about culture, 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 culture. Uh, what was a moment like I, you've you talked to me a little bit before we started, like, What's a, what's a sign of good culture for you? Like when you were in, you played in a lot, a lot of years. You saw yeah. a lot of, I'm sure you saw some toxic stuff. We don't want to go there. But when was that, that moment like this culture's, and I know it's probably going to be a Stanley Cup year, but what was that one little thing where that, that, that tip off to you as a player that this is, the culture is going to be good? Uh, I, I kind of knew the culture was good in Vancouver before I even got there because when we played the Canucks, we got our butt kicked up in up in Vancouver. I was playing with the St. Louis Blues, and I circled that calendar uh, next time I played the Canucks to make sure I was ready to play, and I was going to impress them. And because you just never know, you might get traded. And I want to leave a mark. I want to make sure they know I played in this hockey game. Really? And then I end up getting traded there. And the very first game was the the game that you know against the L.A. Kings that Wayne Gretzky breaks the all time scoring record. And I remember in the first period, I turned a puck over, and I think it, it ended up in the back of the net. And I remember being in that locker room, and, and this is my first game as a Vancouver Canuck. 
And I'm thinking, oh, Pizza man. delivery, yeah, Brad Hedekin. I'm telling you, it's one of those moments that you just go, it just still hurts my heart. But I remember after that period was over, I had Trevor Linden, Martin Jelena, Jeff Cortnell, you know, the leadership guys in that room come over and tap me on the shin pads and say, hey, kid, don't worry, we got your back. And I just remember, I mean, that just almost choked me up thinking about that moment because it, it's one of those things that as a young kid, a 24-year-old kid trying to learn his way in the NHL, trying to get some confidence and, and trying, to, trying to start over in a new environment. Yeah, um, it's tough. It was tough, right? And I think that whole thing made me realize early what selflessness, what a good teammate looks like. And sure enough, you know, those early signs that I saw playing against them, the early signs I knew from this tapping me on the shin pad, trying to pick me up after a tough moment, those are the signs that I knew would take this team a long way, and sure enough, it did. It did, okay. All right, uh, I, I went through some lists here. Uh, I want to have some fun now. Let's like, just ask you some off-the-cuff player questions. Uh, who's the best locker room guy? The guy who is just like, oh, man, he's so much fun to be on the team. And I don't mean like clown, just just a guy who really brought levity to the team and just the guy you think back. Like, that's the guy. That's the guy. Well, you know, Sean Hill, the, you know, he was Duluth a really guy. Duluth guy. Uh, 2002, you know, that Stanley Cup team with in Carolina. He really was a, a fun guy in the locker room. Always kept it light. Adrian Acoin, really funny character. I don't know if he ever was. I'd never seen him serious ever in a locker really? room. Yeah. Always seemed like he was a comedian. Um uh, boy, there's so Ray Whitney in the in the 2006 run. He was a guy that really brought levity and and humor into the locker room. Never got a little bit, you know, let guys get too tight. Right. He always seemed to keep it loose. Uh, and if you ever watch video of that 2006 team, if anybody's getting interviewed before the game, you'd see this guy cruise by, kind of being really <laughs> creepy in the background. That's Ray Whitney going by. He consistently did that all year long. I think people really tuned in. To see the interview, to see Ray Whitney cruise by in the background. Uh, but those are some of the guys that pop out right away. All right, so then there's the guy. So that's the fun guy. Maybe it's the same guy. I'm not sure. But, you know, in a frat, they always have the social chair, the guy who, who organizes the party, who's going to go out. And, and I don't want to say the biggest partier, but the guy who, like, he was the fun chair. Who was the guy in all those years who really made it fun for you guys outside of the locker room? Man, I, there's so many guys I've played with. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's uh, – but – um. You know, I think when it comes to getting back to a little bit of culture and tying this, this answer in for you is the teams that didn't have a lot of success had a lot of clicks and had guys that would never really do things together as a team. Right. But the teams that had success were the guys that always seemed to include everybody. And I can go back to even Mark Messi. And when he was my last couple of years in, in Vancouver, I remember everybody uh, on the bus and we we pull up on the road somewhere and he would kick the coaches off and he would say, guys, I want you all to go put your, uh, your stuff up in the, up in the rooms and I'll everybody meet you in the, in the, the hotel bar and let's meet all, let's all meet there before we go out and we can have one drink together. So he was the first guy that I, I remember him just doing so many things like that, that really included guys. Yeah. And, he had and a purpose. He had a purpose to it, and, and he took a lot of pride in his leadership, and he did a lot of work uh, learning how to become a better leader. And I think that's one thing that's really kind of missing from our sport is these captains that the teams select. They just expect them to understand how to be a leader. Well, a lot of times I see it, in, even in the youth and the high school level, they just take the best kid and make him the captain. Yeah. Like, that's not really 
who it should always should be. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's the the guy who's going to lead the team to get to higher spots. Yeah, and and I think a coach. This is a little bit on the coach's responsibility too. Is right. if you are going to select these guys that maybe they're the most talented, why not give them a little support in the summer? Teach them how to become great leaders. Take them to go talk with Navy SEALs. Talk to, to guys. Yeah. yeah, do things that can help these athletes become more confident among a bunch of men and how to lead them better. Think of the confidence that you could build in a young man, not only as a become a great hockey player, but even more importantly than hockey is how they lead people. I mean, that, that's something that you can take with you forever, forever into everything. Right? right. Yeah. All right. Last question. Who were, who was Brett on the team? Oh man. What were you guys? You weren't <sighs> quiet. You obviously weren't quiet. You were probably very confident. What was your role on the team? Well, you know, this whether it be in the locker room or on the ice, off the ice, whatever it was. Yeah, be. I, I think I tried to be, you know, steady. Yeah. And what I learned about NHL. Steady Heady. They, they, they used to call me that in the <laughs> Olympic team back in 92, and it kind of, you know, sometimes it, I like it, it carried over. Steady Heady and Treddy. Dave Treadowitz was my was my partner. That was what they called us, Steady Heady and Treddy. Um, you know what? I, I think through this journey, and, and I had some tough moments, right? We all do. And right. you, you don't, it's never a straight line in the NHL. You're going to have a lot of bad moments where you, you're banged up and your confidence is shaken. But I worked with a sports psychologist, okay, in my years in Vancouver. And the reason why is because during the Stanley Cup finals um, and even that playoff run in 94, I, had, I, had, I played really good in the opening round against Calgary. Round two, Dallas played really well. Round three, I got a little tight. And then I, nervous. I was really nervous yeah, yeah, and, I, yeah. and it affected my play. And then game one of the Stanley Cup finals, I scored against the Rangers and I really kind of settled down again. And I played really six great games. But then game seven, I got tight. I got nervous between the biggest game of my life, right? Yeah. And it's normal, right? But, but when you're an athlete, you kind of start to go, well, at least this is what I did. And if, I, if anybody can take something from this, I think there's something to it is you have to ask yourself these questions of why did that happen? Right. Why did I get a little bit tight? Right. And did I have the tools to combat that? And really, I never did. Nobody ever taught me these tools. And so I went after that moment, worked with a sports psychologist, and I'm getting back to your question of who I was, is he ended up teaching me who, who I really was after some discussion and figuring out who this player is that I need to be to become an effective player. And I really, from that point on, I had some a difficult coach in in, in Mike Keenan, who really yeah. played mind games with me and yeah. ended up trading me from Vancouver. And I remember that gut punch when he pulled me aside in Dallas. I'll never forget this when he traded me to Florida. And I looked at him in the eye and, and he was playing mind games with me. And this is after he traded me. And I'm asking myself, how does a coach affect me by the way he's treating me? That should never happen. No. That's the old one. If I'm pointing the finger at Mike Keenan, I got to look at the three fingers pointing back at myself, knowing if he's affecting me, that's on me. Yeah. Right. So from that moment on, and even I started this sports psychology before Mike Keenan, but when he traded me to Florida, I really doubled down on, on the sports psychology and spending time every day doing reps of not only breathing, learning how to meditate and the breathing sort of thing, but also seeing myself doing things at a high level and simplifying who I was as a player. This is really important for kids to understand. Everybody wants to be this and this and this and this, and they want to do all the things out there on the ice when really if they just broke it down into two or three things that they do well and really perfected those two or three things, two or three things they become a lot more confident in who they are and they become a heck of a lot more uh, effective player when they step on the ice. And I think that was the beginning of my sports psychology kind of 
track. That's, that's pretty cool. I like to. I wasn't planning on talking about this. I want to go a step further on this. Do you think that is what propelled you from a eight to ten year guy to a seventeen year guy? Hundred percent, hundred percent. If you can imagine that moment, Mike Keenan trades me, and three years later, I've got thousands of mental reps that I've done every day because I committed that moment that Mike traded me. I, I remember talking to him like you and I right now. I said, Mike, I'm never going to forget this the rest of my life. Do you hear me? This is, I'm, and I'm, I'm literally pointing my finger at this guy. You're hot. I was hot. And I said, this will never happen again. No coach will ever control this ever again. I said, you know what? Maybe our pals will cross again someday. Well, three years later, in the thousands of reps that I started doing on a daily basis, they fire our coach in Florida, and guess who they hire? No. Mike Keenan. <laughs> <laughs> and I was... I'm I, sorry to laugh. Well, That's you're, scary. What you were la how you laughed is how I started laughing, because I was laughing for every guy, the trainers, to the doctors, to... Uh, this guy is going to come in guns a-blazing, but this time... Ain't going to get me. I was like, bring it on. Come on. I can't, come on. I can't wait for you to step in here and even try it. And that's how confident I was, right? So, and that's what those reps can do for you. And, and how do you prolong a career? Absolutely. You've got to take control of this mental TV. There's going to be a lot of moments where the, where the channel pops into your head that gets negative, you get self-doubt, and you've got to learn how to pick up the channel turner uh, like you do on a TV and change the channel back to your power channel. And, and I learned how to do that very effectively and very good. And so when Mike Keenan walked in there, and this is where the story gets fun because... Uh, this time he knew he couldn't touch me mentally and he played the snot out of me. He played me so much. I actually couldn't play as much as he wanted me to every night. I'm like, Holy man, I'm tapped out. Right. But there came a moment where I was going to become an unrestricted free agent in Florida. They were going to trade me. I wasn't going to resign there. And sure enough, I get pulled into the office. Hey Brett, uh, Mike Keenan wants to see you in the training room. Right. And so this is where it, it's amazing. He pulls me at in. this point. Did you have a lot of one-on-ones with them? Um, you know, he, he, he just knew he couldn't touch me and we had conversations like we could have right now. I yeah. mean, we, he was not a problem. Uh, he knew he could trust me and he pulls me in there in that office. He says, you know, Brett, I, I, I just want to say, I can't believe I'm, I'm really happy. And, and the way you played for me was unbelievable. We made a trade today and we traded you to the uh, Carolina hurricanes They're a playoff team. They have a chance to go for the Stanley cup. You know, I wish you the best of luck. And, uh, he, he reaches out his hand. He goes, and you know what? He goes, maybe our paths will cross again someday. I mean, he remembered that moment three years earlier when he traded me. And I oh, said, yeah. I had my finger pointed at him, and he, and he remembered that moment. And so it, it kind of kind of jolted me when he said it, because you think that a coach like that with all of the things that he's been talked about as being Iron Mike, but I think deep down he's still got a little bit of that, you know, he, he remembers things like that. But sure enough, um, I think that sports psychology for me – helped me in 2002 Stanley Cup run, but really it kept telling me, reminding me, I keep have to go and keep going with the sports psychology run because when I talk to kids uh, about this whole idea of motivational speaking that I've done a little bit of, but I start at the end. It's the Stanley Cup Finals, Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. It's the goalie is pulled. It's six on five. Oilers got six players on the ice. Yeah. The Carolina Hurricanes have five. I remember five. it. Pisani. Pisani, yeah, what an opportunity, right? <laughs> yeah. And the goalies pulled with Rod Brindamore taking the draw, Eric Stahl, this phenomenal rookie at the time. You guys all know him from the Thunder wild. Bay. Justin Williams, they call him Mr. Game 7. And then me and Mike Commodore are out there to, to ice the game with a 2-1 game. 
and the puck is dropped, and it's lost back to Chris Pronger on the right point for Edmonton. He tries to thread it down the right side. It gets blocked. It goes back to Pronger on the right side. Now I kind of settle in into this soft area covering two guys at the same time. He tries to get the puck by me along the boards, and in this moment of time, biggest game of my life, biggest moment, it comes off the glass, and I knock it out of the air. I knock it out of the air, I settle it down, and I give the puck to Eric Stahl. Eric Stahl takes it on a backhand, gives it to Justin Williams, who splits the defense and goes down and scores in the empty net, and we ice the game 3-1 in the Stanley Cup Finals in Game 7. Now, I start at the end when I talk about motivational speaking because knocking that puck out of the air was not an accident. No. It, it It took a lot of mental reps and a lot of failures along the way that taught me how to breathe, that taught me how to visualize, that taught me how to bring my heart rate down. I used to do juggling, uh, counting down from 100 as I watched a hockey game, as I, as I jumped back and forth to get my brain to understand how I could do more things at the same in time. Chaos, if you watch right? In chaos and, and multitasking, get the nervous system connected to the body. And I look at Connor McDavid. He's at the elite level of, oh. a, of, a, of, a, of a processor, a computer processor. Yes. He's got the highest processor yes. that's capable right out there. That's where I needed to get better at as throughout my career. But when I started to work at those things, work on the sports psychology, I started knocking pucks all down all the time. I was able to play big minutes in hockey games and big moments because so I was able puck, to breathe. I think what you're trying to say is that puck in midair looked really slow to you, yeah. right? Yep. And you were easy, it was easier to knock it out of the air because you had trained yourself. Because I had trained ah, myself. I like that. I like in that. that moment, I was ready for it because of some of the things in, in 94 of getting tight, a little bit tight before game seven, right? And, and knowing even in the... The conference final, I got tight. I didn't play as well. But me telling myself, at least asking the question, why did that happen? I think that's what athletes need to, to do. They need to self-assess. Yeah, all the Champions time. self-assess. Great athletes, great competitors will always ask themselves, hey, what do I need to work on? Be honest with yourself and then go after it, right? <laughs> it's funny. My kids give me a hard time for listening to my podcast. Like, what a loser. You listen to my podcast. I'm like, no, I'm actually trying to make it better you know what i mean it's the same kind of thing i'm like i really my voice actually makes me cringe i go listening for an hour really is painful but i do want to hear how you can ask questions better how you can do all those things together i'm glad that you brought this you had all the detail of that game seven because i was going to ask you this question and i can't remember is it alec martinez what was the guy's name who scored the game winner for the kings something is it alec Alec Martinez? martinez yeah i saw something i don't know whether on youtube or on ESPN or whatever, it talked about his um, game-winning goal. That and goal. they went back all the steps, you know, back to the trades, back to this, you know, all the different things that went into, you know, like it was like a 100 steps wow. how they got to that goal. And meaning the point was it wasn't just Alec Martinez on the back door. Yeah. You know, it was all the, the rebound that came out right. to score. Yeah, yeah, just back door. It was yeah. easy. It looked easy, but all the steps that it took the Kings to get there, yeah. it goes to the same thing you talked about. So, and I think it was kind of a, a kind of a jubilation thing as well. And th- here's your jubilation that goes in. It's 3-1. This kid from North St. Paul who watches the Olympic Games. It's kind of all comes, you know, all those emotions have to come showering down, right, for you oh. in, in that game? Yeah, just... I mean, just coming back to the bench, um, and Glenn Wesley was on the bench at the time, tears were flowing down his eyes, and never won a Stanley Cup after 20 years in the NHL, and he's, he's looking at me, and I'm looking at Wes, and I'm grabbing him. He goes, Hetty, we did it. We did it. We're Stanley Cup champions, and that's something that'll always 
you know, I'll always look back at that moment and just never forget it. And and then Roddy got the Stanley Cup from Gary Bettman, and he gave it to Wesley, and then Wesley passed it to me. Really? And, um, you know, it's it just one of the – he called my name out, Wesley did. You know, we just had such a great relationship, him and I, all those years of us playing together. Um, but, you know, I, I just think those things – you know, all those things flood back into your head of the people that helped you, the people that believed in you, the coaches that gave you a little bit of confidence when you really needed it. I mean, Paul Maurice was a guy that that 2002 Cup team in Carolina. He he did the same thing for me when he pulled me in the office when I first got traded. The very first day, I was a uh, I was a minus three the night before in Florida, and I and I remember coming in the locker room afterwards. And I go, man, I was a minus three tonight. I had a great hockey game. I played really, really well, but I had nothing to show for it but a dash three. I get traded the next day, as the Keenan story goes, and I find myself in Carolina, and he pulls me in his office, and it's just me and him. He goes, Hedy, uh, man, I'm, I'm really excited to have you. I'm, I, he goes, I can't even believe we got this trade. And he was like, you could see, he was excited. I'm like, man, this guy's excited. I mean, and he goes, I watched your game last night. And he kind of went, I went, I went, oh, no. <laughs> and he... Uh, he goes, you were a minus three. I go, yeah, I know. He goes, I thought you had a hell of a hockey game. I thought you played unbelievable. And that's when, I, and he goes, I don't care if you ever score a goal for me. I really don't. He said, I love the way you play defense. I love the way you go back and get the puck and move it efficiently and quickly out of our own, out of our own uh, zone. He goes, if you can do that for me, Hetty, I'll tell you what, man, we're going to have a lot of fun. And that was like, it, I almost felt like a bunch of clouds over my head just parted and the sun yeah. came down and it's like somebody could finally appreciate what I could provide. And he knew it in detail. He knew in detail. And, and maybe it was those mental reps of understanding, hey, I want to become an unbeatable, be unbeatable defenseman, be a great breakout, you know, break the puck out well. Those were my A and B. Those are my staples right. of what I needed to do. Third thing, I would change it up and down, but... Those two things that he said, I break the puck out and I'm, you know, I'm unbeatable one-on-one, were, were the things that I went out and set for myself as my strategy of who I was going to become. Getting back to that original right. question you asked me, of who is, who is Brett Hedekin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I really became a, a, a really solid defenseman that was unbeatable one-on-one. I really said to myself so many times, I dare you. I right. dare you. To unless d- it's Pavel Bure. Unless it's Bure. <laughs> <laughs> then it was like, good luck with that. <laughs> right. But I dare you to dump it in my corner. I dare you to try me one-on-one. Those are the two things that, uh, that became kind of my staples as I, was, I took a lot of pride in one-on-one battles. That's cool. All right, there's so much ground still to cover. I'm sorry. Oh, man. I just got to keep going. I got to keep going here. So I got to get to Christy Yamaguchi. Right? I, I, it's just the coolest thing. Uh, when, whenever I heard you were married to her, I was like, oh, my God, this guy has got the world – by the ass. I mean, he's not only himself a great athlete, but now he's marrying this great athlete and Olympic champion. And you, you'd mentioned to me that you met her. I, I like your story. It's kind of cool how you guys just keep kept running into each kept running into each other. Um, so tell us a little bit. You met in Albertville. Yeah, she, she was, was, was a hockey. We'll call her a hockey groupie. I don't know if she's gonna like to be called, but she liked hockey. Yeah, she won't know, but uh, she does. She loved hockey. She loved the Sharks. Sharks were a new team in the league, and she was a big, big hockey fan. And she came over at the opening ceremonies. All of us American athletes were in this holding pattern, waiting to get together to where we walk out for. And she was a ceremonies. real athlete. She right. was a real athlete. This is when <laughs> she won her gold. You know, I mean, I'm she quoting had, Snuggy now because he let he goes. We just felt like we were just like regular dudes. Yeah, we were and, regular dudes, and these are the real athletes. Real and athletes. She is, man. After you know, getting to know her and, and traveling um, on her tour a few times during all-star breaks and things like that. I mean, I really got to see 
figure skaters as pure athletes, unbelievable grinders to, to be able to do the shows that they would do nightly um, in different cities. I mean, incredible. But getting back to, you know, where I met her at the opening ceremony, she took a photo with a bunch of us hockey players. This isn't on your cell phone either. This is a straight up photograph. Straight up photograph, whatever she had to take a photograph of her with all these hockey players. And uh, I think three or four years later, I, and that was just the only time I'd ever met her was that moment. So did you know who Christy Yamaguchi was? There was, was she famous enough? There was, she was one of those athletes along with a few others that I know after the Olympics she was, but before that, did you know that was Christy Yamaguchi, world well, champion? People were, you know, murmuring of, okay. yeah, she won the world championships. Right. Like, this is this is America's hopeful. Like, this girl's going to win a gold. This girl could win a gold. And you, there was other athletes like her right. that people are like, huh, you know, they're whispering. You're Apollo like, Ono types. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, like, they stand out, right? They stand out, and you're pointing them out. Cool, and like, oh, cool. man. That, so we kind of all had heard about her, and, you know, we knew that she was a real potential gold medalist that could, right. could ha- make it happen. So, um of course, I remembered meeting her, right? Because right. she's a little tiny, five foot one. And I didn't so, know she was that short. Yeah, five right. foot one, or, you right. know, and maybe stretching it there too. But she, uh, you know, eventually four years later or so, three and a half years later, I'm playing for the Canucks, and I'm, I got that's when I got traded up there. A new building in GM Place was built downtown Vancouver. We went from the old Coliseum to move down to a new building. They hired, you know, Kurt um, Browning and Christy to skate, Sarah McLaughlin, Shania Twain. It was a big night, a big kickoff night. And she was down below near the locker rooms and I just, I was down there as well. We had just got done practicing and I think I just, I just saw her. Fanboy, like, hey. right? Yeah. I just say, Hey, I just walked over and I, I shook her hand. I said, Hey, I'm, my name is Brett. I met you at the Olympics in 92. You, we were on the Olympic team together. I was an American hockey player. I just wanted to say hi to a fellow American. Hey, great to see you. And, uh, that's kind of how it started. And then down the road, we were, uh, a month later, we were in uh, Long Island to play the Islanders, and her tour was there, uh, just coincidentally. And then I think a month after that, Wait, okay. So her tours are who went to who? Did you go up to her again? Yeah, would we fanboyed her again? So, well, that night I, I got to retract a little bit okay, because right. after she performed on the ice in Vancouver that night, we were up watching Sarah McLaughlin, Shania Twain. She came over. We exchanged numbers. This is okay. the old time where I had to call her house, like yes. her mom would answer, right? And we, hey, <laughs> Christy, there, you know that kind of. There's cell phones great. back day. This the is day, great. Right? All right, I love this. And uh, so I, re- I still to this day remember her her home phone number, right? It's in my head. It's love it. Uh, it was there. So that's how it started, and, and I would I said, hey, we're, we're coming out to, to Long Island, and, you know, we're traveling. I think, we, I don't know how we connected that way, and but sure enough, her tour was in Long Island, and uh, that's when we were going to play the Islanders there. And so we got together at the hotel. She was staying at the same hotel we were, so we think we got together, and oh, then, then I was down in San Jose to, to play the Sharks. And we, that was the very first time I had called her, and we went for ice cream the night before the game at this You're little like place. all-American boy. This yeah. is so bad. I know, and it sounds cheesy, but it was, it was serious. I, what are you going to do with it? But, Olympian, like, you right? it just kept happening. Yeah. Denver, it kept happening over and over, right? Yeah, because then after Long Island, we were in, in Denver to play the Avalanche. Her tour was there. We ended up connecting and just saying hello. And then I think that's how it really began, the friendship. And then we, you know, became more than friends after that season where um, – her tour ended in Seattle. She came up, drove up to see me play a game, and then my season was ended. I think we went to Whistler. She had never been. And uh, for, shortly thereafter, she was going to go to Hawaii with all her family. She asked me to go, and I'm like, yeah, because it was going to be, a, they called it the thundering herd, but I'm used to big family. My mom comes from right. a family of 12, so I'm, I'm used to chaos at, at events, and so went with her to Hawaii, and that's kind of how it all what started. Did, what did the Yamaguchis think of Brett? 
That'd be a At good first. question. I don't know. What do you think? Probably hockey player. You know, dumb, is, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, no, I, I know you're not, but like that would be the first thought, right? First thought would be dumb. You know, not not a real intelligent, which is fine. But I would say that hockey players and figure skaters, we smell, they don't. They're graceful. We're not. Right. I think those I, are the things. Those that are probably, the the general yeah. ideas. Okay, I like that. I like that. Um, so, at what point do you guys? Uh, make this a relationship. I mean, were you you were obviously playing pro, and her career's what is her career at this point in '96? So she joined she touring the tour with Stars on Ice. So uh, did she Scott work? Hamilton. How many months a year does she work? They would do sixty shows in sixty cities over the course of four or five months, and that could be and wrong. Then eight on, months off, and she'd probably have to stay fit and stay in shape and skate a lot, right? Yes. There was sometimes there was competitions and shows in between those days of the tour happening. But, um, yeah, that was her life. For after she won gold for the 10, 11, 12 years after that, she yep. basically toured with Stars on Ice, and she became a professional, you know, figure skater. And I did some research on her. The, the, the club foot, is that what it's called? She was born with, with club foot. Yeah. That's incredible. And then, you know, wore braces to be able to correct that and goes on to win Olympic gold. Medal. gold. Yeah. I mean, that tells you the commitment, the perseverance, you know, the just going after it. And what people don't understand about gymnasts and figure skaters, especially those two brands of athletes, they're on a they're on a different, completely different level. You know, we always joke, you know, I got a two hour hockey practice. Yeah. You know, that they're just that's a warm up for these guys. I know. Well, you think of a long program for the Olympic Games, and was it over four? Well, it's four minutes now. It used to be six, I believe. Yeah. Six-minute routine. Short program was, oh, boy, Chris is going to get mad at me for this. Um, <laughs> like she's listening. Two to four minutes for the short program. You think boy, she's going to sign notice. up to listen to you talk for Probably an hour Probably not. Probably yeah, not. It wouldn't happen. Ten but, minutes tops. Yeah, exactly. Is it a ten-minute pod? Yeah. I'll listen to that. I'll tell her it's a ten-minute pod. Um <laughs> But, yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, just incredible, the long road pro- program that they'd have to do. We would never make it, hockey players. No. Um, no, and the edges, the absolute crazy edges that they have compared to you and I. Yeah. And that's the part that just blows me away. When I watch figure skaters, especially the pairs, when they, when they drop them down, I'm like, how do they do that with the edges? It's crazy. It's, they're like knives, right? Yeah, I've got a ton of respect for the figure skaters. Yeah, so do I. All right, so, all right, let's get to the bag. Oh, let's do it. You can go off camera for a second and grab that bad boy. Do so, you have any idea that, like, you're at this point in your life, you're 53, two. 52, right? Um, you've had an excellent career as a player. We haven't even talked about the broadcasting. By the way, just so you know, when you were doing your little description there of the, the sideboards, I, I think you got some play-by-play in you. I really do. Oh, <laughs> I think you do. You're like, yeah, off to the oh. left wing, back to, you know, yeah. to Williams. He cuts it out to so like, you're yeah. not color, man. No. You're, you're play-by-play. That was, a, that was smooth. Not a chance. I, I, I can do that little smith snippet, but not for a 60-minute hockey game. Very difficult very to do. Very difficult to do. Very good. Um, let's do quick San Jose Sharks, your career in the booth. Um, uh, how long? Let's just give so they know that you're doing this, and then yeah. I want to get to the bag. So okay. tell, me, tell us what you do in your day job. Day job is I'm color commentator for the San Jose Sharks. 
Um, all 82? All 80. Well, we do about 75 because TNT or You um, get some ESPN, snag by a national. Exactly. National comes in and takes a bunch from us. And But then I do uh, half radio, half TV. Drew Amenda and, and Randy Hahn and myself, we kind of all rotate. Obviously, Randy's the, the constant there for the play-by-play, but Drew and I will do like two or three games in a row, and then we'll go over to radio or vice you versa. You just alternate. We just alternate. I think it's terrific for our fans. Drew was more of a coach. I was the player to get the perspective to our fan to be able to listen to both of us in different. It's cool. It's cool. I think it's great for our fans to have that. And you decide, or, or is it assigned? It's assigned by our crew. So they'll they'll say you're doing these two, you're doing these two. Yep. And do yeah. You, do you care if it's radio or TV? No, I love both. I really enjoy radio where you can get into the minutia. You can kind of talk a little more storytelling. Um, you get a little more time to to just discuss things. Where TV is more. Quick hits. You got to get in and out. You got to. It's a lot more difficult. I agree, TV, because yeah. I. That's what I do. I do, and and sometimes I have a color guy. Sometimes I'm the play-by-play guy, and like you only have certain amount of seconds. That's right. Right. That's it, right. Literally, after it's an internal clock. That's it, yes. Okay. So your color, right? So color is the minute the whistle blows. The play-by-play guy wants a break. He wants to get a sip of water. You're his six second between the puck being handed to the referee and puck drop. And then you got to get six to eight seconds and you got to get out before he gets back on to describe the next set of plays, right? Yeah, when that puck is in the offensive zones, both sides, you're you got to take the ball, you got to hand the ball to Randy or your your play-by-play guy because they want the ball. If that goal that puck goes in the net it's his and, goal you're, call. and you're talking, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Any young broadcaster learning this business, stop talking when the puck is in scoring areas cuz if, if I'm calling a game and someone is standing on my goal call, I will smash their knuckles. I was like, oh, I'm calling this goal. You know, like, yeah. and I don't even, it doesn't have to be the call, but it's just the, the point of like, this is the moment where we would call the goal. And then I'm a guy, I don't know about your partners, but I'm also the guy that once the goal scored, I want that screaming parents, that screaming crowd to tell the story of how exciting this is. I don't need the color guy telling me, you know, Williams just dropped it to Smith, and Smith pumped it in. You know, yeah. let's let that thing wait. Let them go through their little caterpillar line, and then that's your cue. When the caterpillar line starts, that's when I want you to describe what the heck just happened. That's exactly what we typically do on TV, man. I, I lay out. I lay out completely. Let, that thing, let it breathe. Yes. Let the call happen. Even if Randy calls it, I even kind of look over at Randy or even Dan when he's calling it. To when they want to really finish it, and then they know all of a sudden now you. the replay starts. And when the replay and starts, you got that monitor in front of you. I don't have yeah. one of those fancy things. Yeah. That's that's the the life of a NHL guy. Is great. How long now that we've talked about a little bit? Yeah. How long have you been doing this? And when did? How did you get Man. your start? Well, well, tell me how long, and then how did you get your start? I, I've been doing it now. Been retired since two thousand nine. It's now two thousand twenty three. So I've been doing this over ten years. I've been doing. Did you have a break? Post. I had, uh, no, not, well, I, I did pre and post game right after I retired uh, Comcast Sports, like Bally Sports in, in, the, yep. in here in Minnesota. I did uh, Comcast Sports in California doing the pre and post game for the Sharks for a little home window games? of time. Uh, I would do home and road. I would go into the studio in so San you Francisco. You had an 82. No, I wouldn't do all of the games. I would only do partial. But over a while, I started doing a lot more because they're like, hey, Brett, you, we think you can do this. And over the course of that first three or four years, I started doing more and more uh, pre and post on Comcast Sportsnet. Through that time, Randy and Drew were still calling games for the Sharks way back then. They interjected me a couple nights on Inside the Glass. 
And that's when they're like, I think you could maybe do some color on TV or radio, right? So I got interjected into the broadcast that way. Then I needed to jump in on the radio. I did the Olympic Games um, in Sochi on the radio. Um, and like then national, like Westwood One kind of thing? Westwood One, yep. exactly. And then I just started getting some reps in all these times. And then finally, uh, I got hired to do the radio for the Sharks. And that parlayed into, you know, falling into doing some TV for them as well. And then now I do both TV and radio, as I discussed. What You have two daughters, and obviously Christy. What do they think of this? Like, is this just winter, Brett? I, I think right? so. Well, I, I think th- this is always a challenge because I always say, you know, do they want to see a dad that they've never seen really work? Right? <laughs> they saw me as when, when we won the Stanley Cup, my youngest one, who is now 17, and my now my older one is in college, she's 19, they were three and one years old and so our little one was sitting in the cup on the ice really and and so they don't really know me as a professional hockey player right they were too young to really remember so my point to that is is now that i'm retired and how are you supposed to tell your kid that uh you know (laughs) as we see the picture of uh you know there it was that's the the photo of it um how are you supposed to tell your kids that you're still a hard-working father if if i don't if i'm not working so this is kind of my way of saying, hey, I have a purpose, I have a job, I, I, have, I take a lot of pride in it, I, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm professional, meaning I, yeah. I take a lot of time to prepare. Um, and when I get in there to do my call, I'm ready. You know, I treat it like I'm a hockey player. So I, I want them to be able to see me That's do something I like. Answer, yeah, and, I, I, and I, I, I think there's a lot to that to show your kids that you're still having another. You know, I went back and finished my degree the last couple years. I really? think that's something that I'm I really think I've proud read of. That, yeah, I'm proud that I can tell my my two daughters I graduated from college, and they saw me do the work to get there to graduate college. So those are the things that now that I'm beyond my years of them knowing me as a hockey player, I've tried to give them other things that I do that show them I'm continuing to work at things. Right. And for most part, if it's only 41 road games, it's not gone a lot. It's not bad. You know, and I'm only working on the game days, right? I'm not working non-game days, which is right. great when I'm home, right? I'm yep. completely home on the non-game days. Oh, that's This is so cool. I've had so much fun getting to know you. This yeah. is the, uh, All right, let's talk about your daughters a little bit. Right, uh, two daughters, and I'm. I just got to ask for every lameo human on the planet, and you said you've been asked this a million times. Why aren't they wonderful figure skaters or awesome hockey players or just even speed skaters or something with all that gifted skating ability in uh, their parents? Why didn't that happen, or what was their what was their trajectory? Well, my younger one actually. First of all, we told them both: if you want to live in this house, you have to learn how to skate. That's just it. Oh, they did. Yeah, they, they, they both learned how to skate, but that didn't necessarily mean they were going to have to play hockey or be a figure skater. But my younger one ended up figure skating all the way up until COVID, and then she oh, really? stepped away from it. Yeah, and she was actually a really good skater, and she still is. And, you know, is she Olympian? No, but she really took a lot of pride in it. Could she have been something great? I think she could have. My older one, you know, I think the biggest thing that we wanted to be able to do with our kids is – let them create their own story. Absolutely. And their own Amen. journey. Amen. Yeah. So I think it's been. I, people ask me all the time, are your kids going to work here? I'm like, no, I want them to go make their own version of themselves versus be another Christy or be another Brett. Yeah. And, and, I, and now I'm so glad that we've allowed our older one who now has gotten into acting and performing and, and doing plays and 
She's at UCLA. It's no St. Cloud State, but it's pretty good. UCLA? Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, really. No St. Cloud. Man, what a, what a university to get into. And really, you can see why it's one of the top Have your the kids ever asked you about St. Cloud State? Or is that just something that just a speed bump? At pretty much. Oh, it's a speed bump. But they know I graduated from St. Cloud. Oh, yeah. so okay. they, no, they, no, but yeah. just the fact that they know you graduated. That's the only part that matters, but they, right? Yeah, they, they know St. Cloud. I have a lot of pride in my if university. If St. Cloud wins a national championship, oh, I'm man. pretty sure they'll know, right? Yeah, well, Matt Cullen just had his jersey retired a couple of days ago. I'm so yep. proud of Matt. And uh, what a teammate he was. We didn't even talk about him tonight, but, man. We could have. I've done a. He's, I, I said on his retirement video, I said, you know, Matt, you were the greatest player in the world that night when we played game seven. He was. He was. But you go back and watch that game. He was phenomenal that night. So really proud of you. Call him a teammate, but more importantly, call him a friend. Yeah. And call him a guy that's just a wonderful human being, great husband, great father and uh really pretty darn good coach he's bantam double a coach for the number one team in the state right now without question he's going to be a great coach at yeah. any level anything but yeah. Uh, yeah kids i think my daughters are going to be what are their great. names because i read yeah. them they got good names too kira uh, which is kind of an irish name because i'm have a little higher uh, irish heritage uh kira kiyomi we yep. give her a japanese middle name christy's japanese american and then Emma Yoshko, and that's okay. another Japanese middle name. Emma's kind of an Irish name. So we kind of tried to get a little bit of our, our heritage, uh, first name, last name. Great there. stuff. Now, now that Christy isn't skating, I know she's got a foundation through my research, whatever. What does she do day to day? Really spends a lot of time on her foundation full time. That's what she does. They support early childhood literacy. Yep. So, um, I, the way I explain this is, you know, there's a skyscraper in San Francisco, and my wife, she's watching, she's going to laugh. Uh, leaning in San Francisco, it leans a little bit. Yep. And Millennium Towers. And they built that with the same foundation that they've built, what, 1,300 different skyscrapers. But the reason why this one's leaning is because it doesn't have, it's not rooted in bedrock. And I think when I think about kids and I think about what, the foundation does is it gives kids the educational learning ability to to learn how to read to give them that foundation into bedrock so they can build a skyscraper yeah. they can have educational success if they don't know how to read they can't have success and so that's what Christie's foundation does we give families the tablet we give them because uh, a lot of these families that we work with are in underserved areas that don't even have a book in their house Right. We give them a tablet that not only can we listen to them knowing that if they're looking at the books, really reading the books, we can pay attention because all that data is goes to the cloud. We, we can always see if they're not look, if they're not reading and we can get in there and interject. But we have a book coach that teaches the parent how to sit down with the child at night, 15, 20 minutes to, to sit down and read with their child. That's awesome. And that love of reading really starts this bedrock. It starts the screws to go into rock to give these kids a chance to learn how to just have educational success. And that love really starts from that reading. I uh, coached youth football in the inner city and all the kids, was, I'll never forget. There's 15, 20 kids on the team. And I asked them, well, where are you guys going to go to college? And they all said, yeah, we're going to college. And I said, where are you guys going to go to college? They're like 10, 12 years old. And he goes, we're all going to go. Every one of them said North Carolina, cause that's where Michael Jordan went to college. I said, well, that's a fantastic idea. What are you going to need to get there? And that's where we broke down exactly what you talked about. Is that we need to be really good in school to go to University of North Carolina. Absolutely. And you got to just set it the bar right there. Like this is what you have to do in order to get there. Out of those twenty kids, we had twenty kids a year for six years. Out of that kid, uh, twenty-seven of them played college football. You're kidding me. Twenty-seven out of like. 80 ended up playing college football. That's so amazing. they got an education. My, my point is, is like, all you have to do is 
set the bar for somebody, and that's half the battle, just setting the bar. Like you said, you give them a book to read, and then pretty soon that they see, okay, now I can do so many more things with my life than just, you know, playing football. Absolutely. I, I, it's been really fun to see the foundation. I've been a board member with Christie's Foundation for a long time and to see how far it's come. And these tablets have hundreds of books on them, which is really cool that these, these parents and these kids have access to things that they'd never have access to. So, you know, that educational success can take them anywhere they want to go. But it's, I love that you set the bar, you give them an opportunity <laughs> yeah. to, to kind of say, hey, this is possible, and then you just cut them loose. All right. So if you want educational activities, you're going to probably need a backpack. Right, you go. Put some books in there, right? <laughs> maybe a, maybe a computer, a nice maybe some segue. pens, right? We gotta we gotta yeah. do this. I, I'm not little. I was excited for this podcast, but I was kind of more excited for our listeners and myself to learn about how you go from play by or excuse me, color guy to this backpack. How did it just yeah. hit you? And how old were you when you thought of this? Was this five years ago? Uh, I've been two work, years ago. Been working how on it for happen? a while. So I, I have this blanket up in my lake house uh and it's all of all the patches that i had as a kid that were on my jacket my mom cut them off put them on the jacket or i put them on the blanket and so every time i go up in my lake house i see this blanket there and it sparked a, something for me i go fishing with a bunch of my buddies uh up in ontario we drive up we fly into his place and and i, I created these backpacks about seven years ago and i put velcro on them and I put their name, and I put their college logo, the American Canadian flag, Ontario fishing patch. And, and then I started to add some patches for each guy that were kind of unique to them. And then over the course of the, the last seven years, and every time we're sitting down at dinner, I would collect a couple during the winter, and I would hand them out at night. And if you ever caught a 50-inch muskie, you know, Greg, uh, where we go to his place, he would hand you a 50-inch muskie patch. So all these moments that we've had over the course of these years of going up there, they're kind of on the bags now. And there are moments that really, when you look at those patches, they kind of spark memories. Even as an adult. Even as an adult. <laughs> and it kind of sparks back to that blanket that's full of all those patches of me when I grew up in Minnesota and all the tournaments I played in the, in the special moments that I had. And so that kind of said, you know, I think there's something here where kids could kind of start to personalize, individualize their backpacks that are full of these moments that you get throughout your, you know, your youth and or beyond your youth, things that you do as an adult that spark. Mount Kilimanjaro, right? You've, done a, you've climbed, you, you've gone to a national park that really was a that moment. That was one of the things on your website. I saw these national parks. I'm like, that is cool. Right? Because everybody goes to them. Yes. Right? And, and there's probably some in there that maybe you did something that it changed you forever. So every time you see that national park, you know, patch on your backpack, it it gives you that moment that really have made, has made you who you are. And that's kind of where it all started. I think that that's how it sparked me to want to do something like this. I see the water bottles, those fancy water bottles with the stickers, oh, the stickers. on them. And then obviously the Mac computers with the stickers on them. I think we're kind of evolving that onto the backpack, correct? Correct. Um, where do you find the Heady Pack now? Uh, today, where, where do I buy a Heady Pack today? Well, first of all, you can do it online at Heady Gear, so H-E-D-I gear.com. But okay. um, the Minnesota Wild Lodge store, yep. Pure Hockey and Blaine. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's some stores in Hawaii. Dicks? Going to get the Dicks? Not yet, but uh, we're going to we're we're get on there. Dicks. Okay. We're going to work on all these different retailers. And, you know, love to work at Target or any you know, any of these places that would really be able to to create the moments for these kids to let's be able lift to lift it up. Let's, let's yeah, so, so, so this is this, yours. This is one of my backpacks, and this is, uh, I've, got, I've got some different That's uh, a styles. cool. That's super cool. 
This 94? I love that. You, yeah. You're very fond of that 94 team. Well, this, you know, and I say about how moments make us and really yeah. kind of what I'm saying, and this is my 2006 team. Yep. This is the 94 team. I found this patch, and I put some Velcro on it, and you can get the Velcro on my website as well. But, yeah. Um, this reminds me of Pat Quinn. This reminds me of that team I don't, on what it looked, what it taught me how to become man a to a boy, a boy to a man, boy to a man. Um, this is my kung fu. I do some I martial arts. I, I, I want to get yeah, to that thing yeah. next. I want to go to that one last. That thing's badass. Yeah, isn't that cool? Um, yeah. You know, this is shark territory. This is my number when I was, you know, on the team, and you know, just uh, a couple of really cool patches that kind of when I see these patches. I mean, obviously the Stanley Cup Finals. You know, I love this is the one that I love gets Hawaii. Me. Why, is that like Christie's family's? I, you know, well, a lot Christy, of her family there, Christy or is that just where you go? First went there when we that first time we went, and then we actually have a place there in Maui. But um, I feel like it when I go there, I just seem to put years back on my life. You know, I feel really? like that ocean. I need to get there. That the waves. I don't know <laughs> that just the salt air. I mean, it's a beautiful place. You have to go. Um, that kind of reminds me of that. And I have some stores over there. I've got uh, Malibu shirts. Uh, I'm in all of their six stores. Really? Uh, the local gentry is one in Lanai. Um, they have my bags and my patches, too. So um, I'm starting to get a little bit of a following in Hawaii, which is a lot of fun. But these, all of these patches for me, they spark something inside me that, that give me a moment that I, I love carrying them with me. Here, this is going to get deep. Do you ever take a patch off? Yeah, I, I love it. Like, because it would be hard. Like, hey, or if you get a new patch, I got no room for it. So I got to. Well, what's good, like you talk about the, the laptops and the water bottles. Once those stickers on, they're not coming off. No, this, you can. You can pull these off and not you can exchange you'd them. you want to remove six, like, but you know, hey, if just, you got something cool. Yeah, I'll put something different on there. But, yeah. um, but if I'm going fishing, I might take these off and put a bunch of my fishing patches on there. If you're doing something, you're going hiking or, you know, you're going on a trip. I, I think it's the coolest thing ever. Did you ever think that, and, and I'm not trying to plant too much of a seed or pump your tires so much, this might be your ultimate, I, right? I, I just, I hope it resonates. I think in the short amount of time Pretty that I've, soon, I've Christy launched. Yamaguchi's going to be like, that's my husband, the one who invented the heady bag, right? <laughs> Come no. on, give no, oh, oh, yeah. Think about it. <laughs> Oh man! I'm sorry not to embarrass you, but uh, no, it's it's a lot of fun. I I I think the biggest thing that I've said, and I'm just throwing it out there from when the moment I started this to say I, I just want to have some fun. I want people to really connect with this idea of these moments that have really changed us. And I think if I just keep those out there in the universe, that it's it just things have just started to happen for me on this, and it's been a lot of fun meeting people like you and just. Just so many different people have come into my life since since starting this. Yeah, it's been really I can fun. imagine. So I, we probably met on the phone six or eight weeks ago. And for six or eight weeks before this meeting, because we were trying to figure out, okay, I'll, maybe I'll meet you in Detroit or I'll meet you in San Jose or you're going to yeah. be at Hockey Day. Like we were trying to find that time to kind of meet. And for that, I can't, I couldn't wait because I have a vision. And again, who knows if this is going to be true or not. I have a vision that all kids in Minnesota will have this backpack and they're going to have squirtacular patches, hat trick patches. They're going to have patches from their, all those great hockey moments will be on this backpack. And I think it would just be awesome for, for that legacy. You, you won't even have lived here for 20 years and you're going to have a huge legacy on kids here in Minnesota. Well, I can't wait. You know, I think 400 of those backpacks went out for hockey day, Minnesota. Yeah. Every one of these kids that partaked in that weekend, 
got one of these backpacks. And it had like Hill Murray on it or White Bear. And each each school, oh I made God. their own hockey their own day high school. Patch. They had two Hockey Day Minnesota patches. Their high school logo, American flag, their number, their name. Oh, and uh, I, you know, seeing these bags on Sunday and even Saturday night, walking around on these athletes. Um, I was stopping many of them saying, hey, you know, if I hadn't met them in their locker room yet, because I went in to try to speak to a lot of the, the kids, if I didn't meet their team, I saw them out there. I went over and introduced myself to them. And, and it just had so many fun moments of meeting some of these athletes. It was great. So you talked about your family pitching in here. What, let's go back. Mom, dad, are they still alive? They are. Yeah, my mom and dad live in Woodbury now. Okay. My sister lives in Hudson with uh, a guy, Scott. I Eichstead. know. It was, was my last question. Yeah. Scott Eichstad. Unbelievable hockey, hockey player. Hockey player. Yep. Where was he from? From Bemidji. Oh, he was. Okay. And we played together at St. Cloud. Yeah, we I were... did know that. And I thought it was super cool. So this is your only sister then? Only yes. sibling? Yeah, only sibling is okay. my sister. Cool, yeah. cool. I saw that. It was like some my research, like Scott Eichstad. I was like, there's a lot of that out there. Oh, he's... There's a lot of players, siblings, wives, sisters, brothers. Uh, Nick Anthony uh, married um, Keith Ballard's sister. I mean... Um, Let's see. I got another one, another gopher one. It was Chrissy when Johnny Pohl married Eric Wendell's sister, Chrissy. Okay. See, it's not It's not weird. It's totally normal. Well, you know, I think hockey families are, they just. They think alike. They think alike. They have been around the same things, the same people, right? The same types of people. Uh, we are a different breed, hockey families, right? But yes. We're, I think we're a great breed. I think we. We're inclusive. We, you know, we like to do things together as a group, and and that's just kind of how it all comes together. But Scott Eichstead, yeah, great hockey player, great teammate, and really happy about my pretty, sister and him. Pretty big businessman too, wasn't he? Really good. Now he's working for the Sportsman's Guide. He's really uh, done a, a terrific job with them. Yeah, it's fantastic, fantastic. Well, that would say that about does it. We could go for hours. I'm sure talking more NHL and all that other stuff. But uh, I'm going to be. Uh, uh, extra careful with your time and I want to do some more promotion of the bags. How, again, how do you, you find the bags? Uh, I can buy it directly. You can buy it directly online right now. Yep. And I can buy it at a store, pure hockey and Blaine. And, and where else? Minnesota wild lodge and the lodge at the, at, at the excellent energy. Center. Exactly. All right. Awesome. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. This is one of my favorite pods that wow. I've done. Uh, Brett Hedekin uh, from North St. Paul, Minnesota, on the Minnesotan Pod. Thanks for tuning in.